Good morning, good morning. Guess what? I don't have announcements. So um, outside of filling out that Connect card, and for those of you that are watching online, going online and filling that out, um, we love to be praying for you. We love hearing about what's going on in your lives. And so that card on the seat is a really good way to connect with us. And there's a basket on the um, back ledge out there, and you just drop those in there, and we will... Um, connect with you throughout the week. But I was standing here going, I don't think there's any announcements. And Bob Crozier said I could just make some stuff up. So um, he's buying you all donuts <laughs> at the end of church today. And so those of you that are watching online, hop in your car, come on in. Uh, we will serve you in the parking lot, right? I mean, we'll just see. We'll see how the spirit leads you. <laughs> All right, Jason, get up here before this gets. Somebody told me. I just have one announcement, and I just want to say, Cameron, it's good to have you here. Yes. So today we're going to wrap up this five-week series on the power of words, and I hope you're not like, thank God. Uh, but to begin, I, I want to step back and think about our like super unique cultural moment, because for many, life, life has gotten tough. Right? There are a lot of people that are overwhelmed. And what's worst is that most people are overwhelmed alone. The great social sin of the modern world is being naive. Like you can be anything, right, but don't be naive. Belief is out, cynicism is in, and, and here's the primary way that it happened. Like here's how this happened over the last couple hundred years. Historically, the Enlightenment set into motion this great myth of human progress, which assumes that with the passing of time, people are becoming whole, like the world is just getting steadily better. But that idea was literally blown up in the last century because it included two world wars and was the bloodiest, most barbaric century in human history, like in recorded human history. So what happened is the balloon sort of popped on the optimism of human progress, ushering in a culture of widespread disillusionment. So we are a culture groomed by a post-enlightenment story of deconstruction. In other words, as a society, we don't trust God or the Bible or the church anymore. But also, we don't trust people. So our cultural mantra has become something like this. I can trust myself, guide myself, be enough for myself. Tyler Staten writes this. He says, Jesus once wisely said that we'll know a tree by its fruit. So what's the fruit of the story of self-sufficiency in the life of the modern person? We're overwhelmed. Everyone I meet is drowning in their thing. It doesn't matter if your thing is an artistic endeavor, profit margins, whining and dining clients, or raising children. We can't see past our thing because our thing, whatever it happens to be, is all-consuming. We've avoided becoming naive, but we've done it at the cost of becoming overwhelmed. And you think about the challenges in the lives of like our grandparents, right, and great-grandparents. You think about what those people went, have walked through. Like they lived through World War I, right, and then the Depression, and then, the World, and then World War II. I mean, unbelievably difficult. And yet, here's what kind of makes our time in history even harder in some ways. In World War I and the Depression and World War II, mostly people were in it together. Like those hardships tended to bring people together, not in every case or every person, of course, but much, much of it caused people to lean on and trust each other. 
Yet in our cultural moment, the division and the polarization are palpable. The compounding effects of a pandemic and a recession mixed with political up, upheaval and varied responses to injustice leave many in a state of just like isolated anxiety. And so there's been all sorts of research down through the last few years conducted on the science of happiness. How many of you want to be happy? Yeah. The rest of you, you're, yeah. <laughs> you could just sit there and be miserable, dang it. They've done a lot of work on the science of happiness. And here's what's fascinating. This is what's, what's mind-blowing to me is there aren't like hundreds of factors. So you can, you can boil down what makes people happy to like three or four basic things. So here they are in a nutshell. Number one, a few close friends. People are happy if they know and are known, if they have friends that they enjoy and feel safe with, friends to be authentic with, love and be loved by. People who aren't perfect, but when they're happy, we're happy, right? And when they're sad, we're sad, and vice versa. They're in it with us. So a few good friends, okay? And then second, a connected family. So whether that's mom, dad, brothers, sisters, cousins, grandparents, any of that. But more than biology, a family is a place to always belong. People that we know are with us through thick and thin. Okay, and then number three, meaningful work. And here's, get this. It turns out it doesn't matter all that much if it's high or low paying. Like if it is a glamorous career or if it's just kind of humdrum. Our, our work may not even be a career. It might be raising kids or volunteering or whatever. But if people feel that they regularly make a contribution to human flourishing in a significant way, even at a very ordinary level, then at the end of the day, they feel pretty good about life. Okay, and four, finally, a way to make sense of life. So a, a solid sense of the meaning of life, like why we're here, uh, a way to make sense of death and suffering, which is exactly what secularism cannot give us. So happiness consistently resides in friends, family, contribution, and religion. And you guys, when you think about it, as a generation, we're living through a massive societal decline of all four of those. So it's no wonder that we're anxious, lonely, and overwhelmed. Now, we shouldn't be too surprised that this has kind of happened in our nation and is continuing, because when you think about it, America is, is like one grand social experiment built around what sociologists call radical individualism, right? We've talked about this before. Every culture fights a tension between the individual and the group. And in traditional culture, the weight is over on the side of, of the group. And of course, if too extreme, then it can be very oppressive to the individual. So America is in part a reaction to the restricting of the individual. So protection of the individual is essential on some level, but taken to extremes, ignoring the human need for community, like radical individualism causes a whole host of other problems. Because individualism, or whether you prefer the synonym like autonomy, is in direct tension with all four of the factors that scientists tell us are essential for a happy life. Friends, family, contribution, religion. So our, our culture just panders after autonomy, but it seems that we've failed to consider the cost. Like, you can have autonomy or you can have loving relationships with depth to them, but it is almost impossible to have both. So what a lot of people are doing these days is finding, like, pseudo-community, right? People are, in, people are, are engaged in some sort of di digital tribe, they find other people who, in the last couple of years, find other people who are angered by the same things that anger them. And so it's this form of, of like pseudo-community that's impersonating the real thing. So we're, we're already a culture that's been marked for generations by radical individualism, and now we've added complex layers of, of what social scientists call tribalism. And tribalism, again, we talked about this a couple years ago, is marked out by, by joining a group with the intent of opposing other groups. So it's not based on mutual love, but on mutual hate. 
It's not what you're for, it's what you're against. And it is an imposter masquerading as community. So then you throw in the, the digital age combined with the isolating effects of the pandemic, and for, for a growing number of people, their, their, pri like their primary community, and with that, their identity and their self, like sense of self and self-worth and moral vision and the sense and meaning and purpose of life all come from some sort of online community, not face-to-face -face relationships. And the impact of doing relationships digitally has yet to be fully studied and understood, right? Right now, the big discussion in, in our culture is about social justice and politics and sort of the war, this raging war that's just going on between right and left. But when historians tell the story of our generation, like 100 years from now, when we are all long dead and gone, I wonder if the story won't primarily be one uh, of political polarization. I wonder if the bigger story will just be about the digital disruption and the way that that has influenced all of these other things, about the internet and social media and the shift to this online world, and then, of course, how that's all interacted with, with COVID, which, by the way, the effects of it are still ongoing in huge ways. So we read about, like, if you read history, you read about the shift from this agrarian society, like farming, right, to the Industrial Revolution and the way that it just changed, changed everything socially. W when you think about it, we're living through something like that right now. Radical individualism, tribalism, the digital revolution, COVID, all of this has fashioned a society where many people, maybe most people, are overwhelmed, angry, and alone. Which sucks. Let's pray. <laughs> so, okay. So, it, like, in the middle of all of that, I, I, have, I have good news, okay? I have, I have gospel news. In, in the middle of these huge cultural shifts, Jesus invites us to participate in something beautiful. Jesus invites us back into family, friendship, contribution, and life with the Father. It's like Jesus was onto something 2,000 years ago that science is just now beginning to quantify. Like, like humans are designed to thrive by loving God and one another. And autonomy and individualism, um, they cannot hold a candle to, to, to love lived. Right, James? Yeah. <laughs> love lived, baby. So today, I, I, what I want to do is I want to look at a stunning passage from the New Testament. And in the middle of his, like, theological dissertation, um, the book of Romans, in the book of Romans, Paul gives us this captivating vision for community, a picture of an alternative society built on following Jesus in love. And so if you're, if you're new to um, the Bible, Romans is like this theological masterpiece. So the, the first eight chapters, they're just like straight theology, like what God has done in Jesus, his life and teachings and his death and burial and resurrection and his ascension to God's right hand and the coming of the Holy Spirit and what all of that means and the doors that that opens for us. So chapters 1 to 8 are all about what God has done for, for us and for all creation. And then chapters 9, 10, and 11 are about what Jesus is doing in the church, how Jesus has inaugurated a, a new kind of society, this new like multi-ethnic family. And, and then in chapter 12, you get this hinge chapter in the book of Romans, like the opening line that we're about to, begin, about to read begins by saying, therefore, meaning in light of the last 11 chapters and everything I've said to this point, right? So in light of all of that, here's the vision of how we are to do life together. And today we're going to cover all of Romans chapter 12, but we're going to fly through it. So here we go, verse 1. Paul writes, therefore... Okay. In light of everything Jesus has done and this new society he's calling us to participate in, Paul has, has talked about already in chapters 1 to 11, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, family language, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. There it is. In light of what Jesus has done, we are to live like family, right? Like brothers and sisters. We're not family by blood or by soil or by political ideology, but because we're attempting to live out the will of God together. 
We don't live like Americans or Seattleites or conservatives or liberals. We live together as the people of Jesus. Okay, living sacrifices. Verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So to live as family, as brothers and sisters, will require something different. We cannot just adopt or conform to the pattern of this world. We, we live in a world with tribes and divisions and deep selfishness everywhere. But as the family of Jesus together, then we adopt a new pattern. To bring light to the world, we're going to have to look different from the world. And so Paul is, is laying out a contrasting pattern or vision, what it looks like to not conform to the pattern of this world. Verse 3, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Paul says use sober judgment when you think about yourself. That is so hard for me to do. But he says, recognize, you have limitations and celebrate the strengths of others. Like, you can't be an expert on everything. You're going to need to rely on other people. God has given gifts to other people that he hasn't given to you. So humanity, humility will be a prerequisite to live well in this new family. Verses 4 and 5. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, through, uh, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And now Paul shifts the metaphor from a family to that of, of a body. And the idea is that we all consist of many body parts that form one single person, right? You have toes and ears and hair and elbows and a spleen, but each of those individual parts are you. They have different yet critical functions. And it's the same in the church. Like verses 6 to 8, he says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If, you're, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And of course, this is not an exhaustive list. It's just examples that all of us bring something a little different to the table. And you guys, what this does is it takes radical individualism and just throws it out the window. Paul says we can't follow Jesus and live like that. And now Paul, he just, he, he rapid fires off a list of over 25 short, like, staccato commands. What it takes to be one unified body functioning together. So hold on to your hat, because we're going to, Cameron, hold on to your hat. We're going to fly through all of these, okay? Starting with verse 9. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. So love must come from the heart, be sincere, but also hate evil, cling to good. So our vision of good and evil cannot come to us from the surrounding culture. It centers on the life and the teachings of Jesus. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. What does it mean to not conform to the pattern of this world? It means we're actually devoted to one another. We're, not, we're, not, we're devoted to God, we're, we're go, devoted to God, but also to one another. It means we honor one another above ourselves, that we recognize beauty and value in one another. We, we recognize what the, the people around us, the ways that they're making a unique contribution, both to the church and to our own lives. And so we pause occasionally to recognize and to celebrate each other, to just stop and go, dude, you're slaying it. I love how you do that. And you guys, you guys are so stinking good at this. I, I love being a part of it, especially when it's centered on me. <laughs> so he's saying instead of like clamoring to be celebrated, we're just constantly looking for ways to celebrate others. You guys, this is not the pattern of the world. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. So, so stir up that inner passion for God and for serving and then pour fuel on each other's fire to love and serve Jesus. We need this from each other. Okay, verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. So don't suffer alone, but when you suffer, suffer together and remind each other of why we live with hope. And in that way, 
We can walk through affliction with great patience because what is is not what will always be. God is up to something. So we remind each other of that and we stay connected to God in prayer. Verse 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Those, that, uh, those of us that have extra, whether it's a little or a lot, we share with those who don't have in a spirit of justice and, and equity. Right? We're to practice hospitality, to open our homes when we can, to eat meals around a table, whether in our home or somewhere else, and let that table be a place where God moves. Don't stress, Kaya. <laughs> Sometimes the Holy Spirit calls in different ways, you know? <laughs> Verse 14, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So, when you face cultural hostility, does anybody ever feel like they're facing cultural hostility? I mean, we're feeling that in our bones right now. When you face cultural hostility, here's what Paul is saying, become a graveyard for hate. Don't return hate with hate, but let it die. Follow Jesus' example, who crucified in public, refused to retaliate against the people that were hurting him. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. So when people are, are facing loss or fear or sadness, be sad with them. And when those in the family are celebrating, celebrate together. Don't, don't live this I do me and you do you kind of life. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Again, this is, a, this is all a picture of what it, what it means to be set apart, to live in harmony. Find a way to get past personal tensions. Find a way to get past differences on non-central issues. Find a way to live at peace with one another. Don't be proud, but willing to associate with people of low position, he says. If we're driven by pride the way that our culture is, always, always, always trying to outclimb or outshine one another, then we're just replicating the pattern of this world. And that, don't, let's not kid ourselves, that can go on right inside of churches. It's a way that's death to a community and to a family and a friendship and a church. And what happens then when people in, inside of a church wound each other? Verse 17. He says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. When you're hurt, don't hurt back. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. He says in verse 18, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live in peace with everyone. So it takes two people to live in peace together, right? But as far as it depends on you, do your part. Be gracious, kind, invitational. Verses 19 and 20. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. So go out of your way to show extra kindness to those that have hurt you. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> Just keep that in mind. <laughs> no, like, that's weird, right? <laughs> heap burning holes, coals on their head. What? Like, okay, so this, this is a quote from Proverbs 25 in the Old Testament, and it's an image from extremely ancient cultures. And scholars suggest various interpretations. And here's what we could do. I could walk through all of them, and it would take a really long time, and it would bore you to tears. So I encourage you to research it yourself. <laughs> there is this amazing thing in the world right now called the Internet. Okay, but keep in mind, the point Paul's making all through this whole passage is show extra kindness to people when they hurt you so you can live at peace and reflect Jesus. So somehow, the, the whole Coles thing, it fits into that theme. It's not about disrespecting or hurting people, like even, even subtly. Which becomes even more obvious in, in Paul's closing statement to this section. Here's the summary point for this entire thing. Verse 21, he says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, I mean, what a beautiful and compelling vision. I feel like we should give the Bible a round of applause. <laughs> yeah. But you guys, that's a lot, and some of you got lost one verse in. So 
let me, let me kind of highlight three different main themes that run all the way through. Three themes that are, I think, not only run through this, but are so relevant for what we're walking through in our day. And the first one is, forgive each other for not being God. It's essential that we have reasonable expectations of one another because no church, no community, no relationship, no friendship, no spouse, no family of origin, no parents, no children, no pastor can live up to all of our expectations and be God for us. Okay, like everyone and everything at some point will let you down, including yourself. You can't even live up to your own expectations, and neither can I. We're human. We're all flawed, broken people. Christians love to point to like Acts chapter 2 as the template for the church. And it is. It's a stunning like description of the early church. And you hear people say, okay, we need to be more like that. We need to be like the early church. And that, of course, like that's not a bad idea. There's a lot there to emulate. It's beautiful. It's a stunning picture of community for sure. But sometimes people sort of operate like, why isn't my church just like Acts chapter 2? And they sort of operate with this idealized picture of the church, like they envision a kind of utopia. And then they encounter an actual church and get hit with all this frustration and disappointment. You guys, if Acts is our example, like if we're going, okay, we're going to be like the church in Acts, then we have to like keep reading. Just turn a couple pages (laughs) and get beyond Acts chapter 2 into the next several chapters. Sometimes people don't realize that Acts chapter 2 is like the church is still in like the honeymoon phase. Right, And if, so if you keep reading in Acts, that same church in Jerusalem, not long after that, we're talking weeks later, it goes on to deal with racism, full-on income inequality, persecution, power dynamics, leadership splits, false teaching, debates over theology, and on and on and on. Acts paints a picture of a church that's beautiful, you guys, but it is anything but utopia. And so many in our generation are disillusioned with the church. And a lot of it is for really, really good reason. Like historically, horrific things have been done in Jesus' name. Oppression, violence, bigotry, imperialism, and on and on. And for anybody that's paying attention to that, it's upsetting. Okay, and then over the last few years, for many of us, it is perplexing to process things that have been said and done by people who claim at some level to follow Jesus. I mean, people have behaved badly. It's upsetting. And it would be weird to not be bothered by that stuff. But no church can be utopia. We have to have realistic expectations. A church is just a gathering of people learning a new way together, and we should expect to encounter broken stuff that's going to take some work to fix. Um, There's a classic book called Life Together written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and those of you that know Bonhoeffer, he was a, a German pastor in the time of the Nazis. You talk about a tough calling. I'm like, COVID was hard. get to heaven and he's going to go, oh yeah, that was really rough. I'm Dietrich Bonhoeffer. (laughs) He was a German pastor, okay, in the time of the Nazis. And what he did is he established an underground community called Finkenwald. And it was a a training institute based on the most famous of Jesus' sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, where people lived together and learned the way of Jesus together. I mean, pretty cool, right? And then Bonhoeffer was executed by the Nazis shortly before the end of World War II. But he wrote a little book about living in that community called Life Together. And in it, he describes one of the biggest problems that would get in the way of that community functioning like the people of Jesus. Here it is. He says, he says the sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves the dream of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Just read that part again. He who loves the dream of community more than the community itself. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, 
sets up his own law and judges the brethren and God and himself accordingly. You guys, it's easy to love the dream of community. It's not a real thing, right? It's just a hypothetical situation. It's easy to love the idea of community or the idea of a church or the idea of a relationship or the idea of a marriage or the idea of friendship or the idea of you just, you fill in the blank. It's a lot harder to love your actual spouse or your actual church or to love your actual friends when they behave badly. Let me think back to Romans 12. Paul's vision for community. It's beautiful. It's stunningly beautiful, but it's, what the crazy thing is it's super honest about real life, about real community. I mean, if you notice what's built into every one of the 25 plus commands, it's like he, Paul assumes that there's problems. He's assuming that there's tension and interpersonal conflict, that you want to get back at people, that you're hurt and you want to get even, that you're full of pride and the people around you are too and that they don't want to share and you don't want to share and you don't want to listen to other people and they're jealous and you're jealous and on and on and on. So Paul's commands just assume all of that stuff is in every one of us. And eventually this stuff will need to be overcome along the way. To be people that do life in community over time, we're going to need to forgive each other for not being God. Okay, and then the second theme that we see here is listen in love. I mean, it's just kind of woven all through. Listen in love. Psychologists tell us when people, um, and the technical language is when they feel felt. I just kind of like that. I feel felt. When they feel felt, meaning that, that, they, th- that sense of someone is really listening to me and compassionate attention, and they're, they're like not on their phone or distracted or sitting in judgment or waiting for me to finish because they're forming their rebuttal. They're just listening in compassionate attention. When we experience that, there's something human that happens. We feel love and healing. And you guys, the last few years, have been traumatic for almost everybody that I know in some way. But psychologists tell us that, that trauma is not just what happens when people experience suffering. Lots of people experience various forms of suffering, and somehow they come out of it fine. Have you noticed that? Trauma is what happens when we experience suffering alone, when we don't have anyone to hold that pain with us. Uh, Robert Stolero is a psychologist and philosopher, and he's studied and written extensively on trauma, and he writes, trauma is when severe emotional pain cannot find a relational home in which it can be held. And I think, I think that's beautiful language, a relational home. I mean, that's the call, to, to function as a relational home for one another, a community of people who can really listen to one another, a place where we can let our guard down and we can be real. But I, wanna, I just want to throw out a warning right here. If you hear me say that and then you think, you're right, Pastor. So how is the church doing that for me? Do I feel felt? Do I feel like I'm heard and listened to? Gosh, you know, sometimes I don't. Maybe this church isn't really serving me very well. I, I just want to say, The more you focus on you being served instead of how you can serve others, the more this thing is about your needs being met, the less likely you are to breathe life into others. And if we all walk around like that, this is going to be hell on earth. A bad question is, how is the church doing that for me? A better question is, who are you doing that for? Listen in love. Are you someone that seeks to listen in that kind of way? Who are you serving, just serving by listening these days? And again, if, if, you, think that, if you think of the church as like this hypothetical utopia, then you, you can have a season, because we're all going to go through a season where, at least for moments, we don't feel felt, and then you become disillusioned and you walk away. But if each of us is striving to become a better listener, we, we really can experience God's kingdom together. And again, this is so different from the pattern of our world. And this is particularly true when we encounter, like, opposing viewpoints. Um, I had a man in our church come to me a few years back, 
and he was concerned about another man's social media posts. And it became clear the reason he was calling me and telling me about it was because he was wanting me to go and confront this other man. Like, if I just knew, then I would sit this person down and give them the business. He wanted me to tell them that this, his thinking and his approach to this wasn't Christ-like, that he needed to repent and change his behavior. And so I asked, hey, um, you have a relationship with this guy, right? Well, y- yes, I do. But we're worlds apart on a lot of political issues, so I don't think I'm the right guy to confront him. So I asked, well, what if you like met with him one-on-one and not as a confrontation, but in kindness. And you asked him to tell you about his life experiences. What if you were to sit down with him and like, just be curious? No judgment. No listening so you can pounce and dismantle his erroneous thoughts. Just listen and be curious and then ask more questions. And along the way, ask about his thoughts on the issue at hand. And then when you thoroughly understand where he's coming from and you really know what he thinks and how he came to think it, then maybe you could share your take on it and see what he thinks about your take. Maybe, maybe I just want to throw this out there, maybe you're not getting the whole story on social media. So what if you like build a bridge and get the whole story? So I said, I'm not going to him. You go. You be a brother. Thank you, Glenda. You guys, you do not want to go to a church where, like, the pastor patrols social media. Some of you are just thinking about that, going, ooh. (laughs) What have I posted? And just confronts anybody that that posts something that he deems off. Like, you don't. You you, you don't want a church like that. And I'll tell you right now, this this is, like, if you do want a church like that, this is not going to be your church. Like, I have no interest in that. I'm interested, here's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in building a family where we can listen to one another. Where even when we differ on emotional topics, like we listen and we treat each other with compassion and kindness. And as much as possible, we can all feel felt. And we can, like brothers and sisters, love one another through differences of all kinds. And at times, we're going to need to challenge each other. So please don't hear me saying, well, this is, you know, it's all just rainbows and and unicorns and all that, like fairy dust is being blown around or whatever. We're going to need to challenge each other. That's part of the deal. But we do it gently, we do it carefully, and we do it the way that we would want to be confronted. And if we're going to confront, we better darn well make sure that we understand where the other person is coming from. It needs to come after really, really listening. You guys, we need to do our best to become world-class at listening and love. Our world needs it. We need it from each other. And this isn't just, by the way, it isn't just about differences. It's about everything, right? It's about the sorrows and the joys and the fears and the losses and the hurt. We we listen to one another sincerely in compassionate love. And so, again, I just want to say, Who are you doing that for right now? I mean, let's not allow this to remain like a really cool idea that's out there, that's hypothetical. Who are you spending time with that you can focus intentionally on listening to? Inside the church, in your home, at work, wherever. Because this is the way of Jesus. This is is what it is. This is a big part of what it is to be set apart. It's almost like Paul agrees with James, who said... Be quick to listen, slow to speak. This is the last week of this series, and I just, you know, I love that. So can we just do that? Be quick to listen, slow to speak. Yeah. Okay, and then one, okay, one last way to summarize the 25 plus commands of Paul is number three, stay. In our culture, we're, we're so quick to walk away from one another. Paul is saying, Do everything possible to work through issues. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But that will require, in in certain seasons, it will require hanging in there, not walking away. Navigating differences and hurt and challenges is actually part of how Jesus forms us. 
Like if you're in a church and there's never any conflict, you're not being formed very well. But so often in our culture, we, we don't allow ourselves to be formed in friendship, in marriage, in church, in a workplace. Because as soon as something becomes challenging, we go. But if we live in that kind of community, if everyone's kind of walking on eggshells, then who wants to open up and get real? Like, you gotta allow, we have to allow other people to see our shadow side. And when that happens, our, it, 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 what happens is, if we're not doing that, our, our growth is stunted. And this is why the relationships with the most potential to form us into the likeness of Jesus are the long-term ones. Because those people can come to see us as we actually are, right? Now, I want to say this definitively. There absolutely are times to break off a relationship because it's toxic or unsafe or just not the right thing. There absolutely are times. Or because God calls you in another direction, right? And you need to move on. Like, not all relationships, not all friendships, not all church communities can, can, can last until you die. And that's okay. Sometimes the wisest thing is to move on. But as a general rule, we stay, or at least we're really slow to leave. Okay, okay, so summarize. What does it take to live together in community? Whether this is marriage, okay, friendship, family, church, Forgive each other for not being God. Listen in love and stay. And you guys, this, this feels like so non-dramatic and unglamorous. But I think this is how we play our small part in the healing and the renewal of, of our culture. It is so easy to complain about the state of the world. Complaining rarely makes things better. And historically, what changes things is the way of Jesus. It's people living the way of Jesus in friendships, families, churches, everywhere. Now, that being said, not all gatherings in the name of Jesus reflect the way of Jesus very well, do they? But the more they do, the more power is unleashed. And so if we want our world to look different, then it starts with us. I love, uh, cultural commentator David Brooks said in a recent interview, culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. We are, you guys, we are a small group of people in a much broader culture. I mean, as followers of Jesus in the greater Seattle area, I don't know what the percentages are right now, but it, we make up a small percentage. And right now, there are a lot of people asking questions because a lot of the facade of secularism and individualism and all of the isms that are in our time that are sort of trendy in our time. In this season, they're starting to crumble and they're starting to fall apart and people are looking around for a better way. And we all, we have our own issues, right? And we have our own problems. But what if we were to find a, a better way and continually invite others into it with us? Like in the middle of these huge cultural shifts, in the middle of radical individualism and tribalism, Jesus invites us to participate in an alternative society, like a society extending open arms to lonely and hurting people wherever, they're, wherever they stand on stuff. And, okay, so I just, I want to end this series on just with a personal note. Um, we're wrapping this up, but Jen and I moved here from Bellingham in August 2002 with a dream. And so this month, it has been 21 years that the two of us have led Brookview. And here's what I'll tell you. It, it has required all this stuff, all of this stuff that I'm talking about today. Like, as a community, we've forgiven each other for not being God. Like, when, when, you, when you let your life actually get intertwined with other people, and when you get transparent, and they do too, it gets real. And, and so I've hurt some of you, and, and I've been hurt, right? And that's part of the deal. But this is one of the most gracious communities. I, I have never experienced anything like this. And my goodness, are you guys skilled and committed to listening in love. Like, it has been one of the main hallmarks of this community for many, many years. 
But you guys, it really showed up and it really carried us through COVID. Because we had plenty of differences here. But we listened in love. And many of you have, have stayed in seasons where it was tempting to go. There were all kinds of motivations to move on to something else. But, but this, wasn't, this wasn't like a service you attended. These became your people. And so that's how it is for me. You guys are my people. Like, you really, really are. Um, when I was in seminary, um, and I've talked about this before, but I was being trained to be a pastor. And I had this curmudgeonly older professor. No, he was actually a sweet man, but he, he was old. <laughs> and and he, he told us all as students, and he would tell everybody that would listen, he would say, look, look, you can't be friends with the people in your church. You have to find friends outside the churches that you serve. You can't confide in them or, or be close to them. They are sheep. You are the shepherd. Okay, they are clients. They are the clients you're the clinician. Keep it professional. Don't let it get personal. But you will have to be diligent about forming real friendships outside the church because you need that. If you don't do that, it will become so, so lonely for you. And he was, now he was saying it in love. But I, I, as I listened to that, I completely rejected his whole picture of church. I immediately thought, no freaking way. I'm not doing that. I, I am not going to be a clinician who has clients. I, I'm going to be a flawed and real person who lives in family. And if, if you've been around here for very long, for those of you that know me at all off the stage, you know I'm flawed. Manette, don't nod too hard. Uh, <laughs> No, so, because I do stuff like that, like, you, <laughs> and, and <laughs> you guys have given me grace for, for years, and okay, I'm flawed, but, like, hopefully I'm growing, right, and in, in 20, in 21 years, I, I feel like I've grown a lot, and some of you are like, yeah, you were horrible, <laughs> but those of you that, that know me, um, you know, like, I, I suffer from idealistic distortion. <laughs> I am unreasonably optimistic about all kinds of things. Uh, find me in April and ask me about the Mariners. I just want you all to know I said they were going to be good this year. Because <laughs> I say that every stinking year. But this, so this, this idealistic distortion, it colors kind of how I, how I see most things. And so, like, I expect the best, right? Which is cool, except it sets you up for disappointment. And so, uh, I will, I'll tell you guys this. Leading this church is the hardest thing I've ever done. It has been slower and harder than I thought at every turn. I'm like, Jen, we're going to move down there, and it's just going to explode into a community of awesomeness of thousands of people, and I'm just going to sit at home and sip lattes. <laughs> it has been slower and harder than I thought at every turn. And so for 21 years, it's felt that way. In fact, um, it was so slow and so hard that if you've been with us, Brookview's almost died several times. And we have been on life support. But somehow this like gritty group of people found a way. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you this, after 21 years, I don't know how much longer I've got. Um, it feels to me, it honestly feels to me like I'm at about half time. That's probably idealistic distortion. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're like, some of you are doing the math, you're like you'd be 71. Now that would be something. By the way, also 21 years, I just realized we've become like an adult church. We can do like real wine with communion. 
that. I love this. Like, I, I have no intention of doing anything else. I love this. I love you guys. Thank you. And this, this and you guys have become... It's been cool. <laughs> it's, been, it's been real cool, man. Um, it, it's been more special to me than, than I ever imagined. It's, it's been so much harder. now you guys it's like we're in this sweet season together and I'm sure another pandemic is right around the corner <laughs> but for right now I feel so blessed and here's what I'll say I think I think Paul knew what he was talking about because you guys have embodied his 2,000-year-old words for a long time. Not perfectly, of course. But you guys, this actually is becoming an alternative society where love is lived. It's not perfect, but it is awfully good. And it's so good that if we keep at it, others may decide to copy us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father in heaven, I thank you for the picture of life together that we get from Jesus and those that followed Jesus and came to know it and live within it. I thank you for this picture that we have in, in Romans 12. But even more, I, I thank you for what that picture looks like when it's lived out in a marriage, in a friendship, in an extended family, maybe in a workplace, in some unique situations, in a, in a church. And this is, not, this is not something that we're able to just pull off, and all of us fall short of it all the time, but it's, there's a reason that we should strive for it, and there, there's a reason that we should play our part in it. We're all being invited to that by you, and I pray that you would help us to do it as, as best that we can, as fast as we can. We need each other, and I thank you for giving us each other with you at the center of all of it. Amen.